Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. As the drought in the western states intensifies, wildfires have become an increasingly dangerous hazard. The wildfire that struck between Denver and Boulder, Colorado last December exemplifies the impact of such blazes. The fire forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of residents and destroyed nearly a thousand homes. Concern for wildfires has been increasing in Texas, a state the drought has hit especially hard. As of March 15, 2022, 70% of the state observed severe or worse drought, and 41% was classified as extreme or worse drought. In mid-March 2022, a developing weather system caused NOAA's Storm Prediction Center to classify the fire risk as critical to extreme across much of central and western Texas. I took a four-day trip to see potential wildfires firsthand and learned as much as I could about this hazard. This GeoTrek podcast episode, titled Voices from the Texas Wildfires of March 2022, covers the stories from this trip and introduces you to people I met along the way. Before we get into the podcast, I wanted to ask two favors from you. Please subscribe to the GeoTrek podcast. Your subscription helps us mark progress and gives us solid footing to establish professional partnerships. Also, please join our discussion group on social media to join in the conversation following this episode. You can find us on Facebook under the group name GeoTrek The Community. And now please enjoy this latest episode of the GeoTrek podcast called Voices from the Texas Wildfires of March 2022. Midday on Wednesday, March 16th, I left my home in Galveston, Texas on a four-day trip to learn about wildfires. Although the greatest risk for new fires was located in West Texas on the following day, there was some uncertainty related to if, where, and when fires would form. I reduced this uncertainty by starting the trip with a visit to a known fire that was already burning. On the Texas Wildfire Incident Response website, I saw a 2,900-acre blaze called the Christine Fire was listed as active and 90% contained. The fire was named after a small community located south of San Antonio. I could see the fire plotted on the website map and receive latitude-longitude coordinates when I clicked on its icon. I arrived at the crossroads of Christine, Texas around 6.15 p.m., which left me with more than one hour of daylight. I drove south along Texas Highway 16, targeting the location of the icon on the map, and smelled smoke before I saw any burned areas. By the time I arrived, the fire was fortunately contained and no longer active. But this gave me the opportunity to investigate a very recent fire. As I embarked on a fire hike, I reflected on the fact that although I've experienced extreme weather around the world, I have little experience with wildfires. I do remember smelling smoke during the summer of 2005 in Fairbanks, Alaska, and driving through a narrow burn zone on the Dalton Highway north of the Yukon River. The only other wildfire I experienced indirectly was the Settlers Creek Fire that burned in the hills above Boulder, Colorado, while I was getting married alongside Boulder Creek in the valley below in April 2008. Fire engines roared past our ceremony, carrying firefighters to battle the blaze. That said, I've never investigated a wildfire scene before. My South Texas geotrek felt quite unfamiliar as I hiked over a charred landscape where fire consumed the grass and darkened tree trunks. At one time, the forested area opened up and I was standing in a burnt field. I felt bad for the ants when I saw numerous anthills scattered along the ground. I let my curiosity guide me to picking up a stick and poking a nearby anthill. To my surprise, dozens of little red bodies came pouring out of the hole that I made. How did these ants survive an inferno 
that just scorched the landscape. A few minutes later, a movement caught my eye. It was a grasshopper jumping along in the burned area. How did this little guy survive as well? Did he hop in from an unburned area three, four hundred feet away? Or did he shelter underground? After reflecting on the body of a little turtle that didn't make it, a larger animal caught my attention. A wild hog passed my vision from right to left, just in front of me about 90 feet. It never detected me as I stood motionless and remained downwind from it. After the hog passed, I started walking back to my vehicle by another route. From the corner of my eye, I saw a deep glow. I squatted to near ground level to confirm what I thought I had seen, the orange-red glow of burning coals underneath a fallen tree trunk. Although this fire was officially listed as contained and inactive, it still burned in some isolated areas. The sun was setting. I learned a lot from my first visit to a burn site, and this left me with numerous questions about how so much life could still be found in a blackened landscape. Day two of my wildfire trip was Thursday, March 17th. This was the day with extreme fire danger in portions of central and western Texas. I woke up early and drove the first two hours in darkness before sunrise to Eagle Pass, Texas, on the Mexican border. A full moon set to the west as I drove. As the sun rose, I stopped for breakfast tacos at Super Tacos Morales, who claimed to have the best tacos in town. My three tacos satisfied me, but what confused me was the Christmas tree still standing in mid-March, covered with St. Patrick's Day decorations. This felt strangely out of place, less than two miles from the Mexican border. After breakfast, I continued north of town to find fire number two. The Burr fire was shown between Eagle Pass and Del Rio. The 2,700-acre fire was listed as 75% contained. However, my access to this fire was blocked by a locked gate, blocking the gravel road to the fire several miles away. I decided to bail on this fire and drove northwest past Del Rio, also on the Mexican border, into a town called Comstock. Even though I never crossed into Mexico, I had to go through a random border control point. When I told the guard that I'm an extreme weather scientist, he asked if they should be concerned about hail this season. My original plan was to keep hugging the border and drive to near Big Bend National Park. Fire danger was listed as extreme in the park, and I thought the dramatic landscape would make for some great geotreks. However, north and west of Del Rio, the landscape became more remote, and I was losing cell service. I usually love getting very remote, but the purpose of this trip was to track active fires, and for this, I needed to be connected to the latest technology and weather information. As I was in Comstock, Texas, the dry line passed through. This is a boundary between hot, dry air to the west and cooler, moist air to the east. Gusty winds pushed hot, dry weather into town, making it feel like a blowtorch. The temperature soared to 90 degrees on my car thermometer, and humidity levels dropped at nearby Del Rio from 60% at 10 in the morning to only 19% by 4 p.m. I decided to drive north to a town called Ozona, a location more central to the extreme fire danger area and a place where I could likely find better cell phone service. For 90 minutes, I drove north through hilly country of Highway 163 as strong west winds occasionally blew small clouds of dust over the roadway. As soon as I reached Ozona, the National Weather Service in Midland, Texas, tweeted the following statement, A large wildfire is moving east toward the town of Barnhart. People in and around the Barnhart area should follow the advice of local authorities. Do not attempt to fight the fire yourselves. I immediately drove north toward Barnhart, a city just 29 minutes north of me by car. 
My decision to go to Ozona paid off as I learned a storm chasing lesson. Position yourself in the center part of a warning area, especially if the place has better technological connectivity like cell phone service. In Barnhart, the sheriff told me the fire was actually not threatening town, but was farther west. As I drove in that direction, I eventually saw a massive plume of smoke. Burning fires about three miles south of the road that connects Barnhart to Big Lake. Access roads were blocked off. I really wanted to see a wildfire up close, so I found a gravel parking lot near the roadway and geotrekked through three miles of grasses and brush to the fire edge. I had to climb three barbed wire fences in this remote area. I never saw any people, but passed close to a large windmill that whooshed overhead. Eventually, as the sun lowered in the sky, I arrived at the edge of the fire. I took an upwind track so I was never smelling any smoke. Then suddenly, there I was, just feet away from open flames that burned grasses, knee-high cactus, shrubs, brush, and a few small trees. The wind was from the west, and that's where the available fuel was located too, so this slowed the spread of the fire in this area. Still, it slowly worked against the wind, consuming new grasses and dry shrubs. As I was observing the fire and just taking all of this in on this foreign landscape, I suddenly heard the sound of large machinery. Behind a large bush, I saw the silhouette of a large tractor coming right for me. I darted out of the way before the yellow tractor cleared the fire perimeter right where I had been standing. A man named Fred, who worked for Iron County Road Department, drove the tractor. Next thing you know, we were chatting, and I climbed up onto the big blade he was pushing near the door of his cab. You, you ever see someone pop out of the bushes before? Or is that the first time? Not the fire, but it's the old fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's the old fire, it's getting the hell out of I didn't mean to surprise you. That's okay. I, I, I saw you coming. My name's Hal. Nice to meet you. Really nice to meet you. Thank you for your hard work here. You, you from around here? I actually live in Galveston. Yeah? Yeah, I'm a disaster scientist, so I travel all, all over the world kind of um, learning more about disasters to help with education and stuff. Cool. So I appreciate your help with this. You you work you work fires out here before or just more on the... Wherever they need me. I work here in Castro Oh, fantastic. So, uh, yeah. So I did not have my audio recorder activated when Fred opened the cab of his door, but he was like, what in the world are you doing? He had never seen someone pop out of the bushes before on the perimeter of a fire. I didn't have that recording, but I started it right afterwards where you can see that he was surprised. I asked him if he had ever seen someone pop out of the bushes before, and his response was legendary. He said, not unless he's on fire. So uh, just a funny guy. I found this pretty descriptive of the perspective of the people out there. Tough, resilient, but also really good sense of humor as they're fighting natural disasters. While I was chatting with Fred, a man named Justin passed us along the fire perimeter in a mini fire truck. He sprayed a hose on the flames that were flickering near the fire's edge. This hose was connected to a 500 gallon tank in the truck. In this way, he could direct the water where it was most needed, far away from well water and city water. This is how these firefighters fight these fires way out far from towns and cities. While I left Fred and Justin along the fire edge to start a three-mile trek back to my car, as the sun set and a massive yellow moon rose in the east. Fortunately, my headlamp helped me find my steps as it was getting dark. I opted to walk farther, actually, but along a road that was farther to the west, this made it easier to walk and possible that someone would pick me up as I was walking back. That actually happened as a firefighter named Jaron slowed down to ask me if I needed a ride. 
I hopped up in the cab and recorded a little bit of our conversation. I'm with Jaron and he was telling me that the fires here, a lot of it's on the ground. So you can actually, you're not fighting it in like the tops of trees like you would, I guess you said like out by California and stuff, yeah, right? California and all the forest fires, you know, they, they fight those a little differently uh, just because it's too hard to access. They can't access it from driving trucks in there. So they actually have guys on the ground fighting them. Yeah, so here it's a little bit easier to fight it because it's, it's on the ground. Correct. Yeah. Thank you, Jaron, and thank you for the ride. I sure appreciate it. No you problem. You saved me a bunch of walking. <laughs> yes, sir. And thanks for your service. Yes, sir. Thank you. Right there. How long have you been fighting fires? Two, since 2011. Wow. So you have some good experience. How does this the size of this fire relate with other ones you've seen? Um, it's different with the, the area where we're at. Old fields always growing, so there's always new roads going up. And yeah, of course sure. that, that allows the uh, allows the fire a chance to stop, and we can catch it at a road. So this one, you know, this one moves so fast just because the wind was blowing so hard. Yeah, they, they ever do anything that like surprises you? You're just like caught off guard, or usually have, have you kind of like seen all the different scenarios? Yeah, I mean, you've always got to. The weather is always the biggest factor. And, yeah, uh, the directions of the weather or, or the wind. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was the biggest factor today is the wind and which way it was going to shift. Yeah, so. for sure. Well, thanks, Jared. I want to hold you up. I appreciate the ride. When I got back to my vehicle, I checked out various fire tracking websites and learned that the fire I investigated was called the Chico Lane Fire, named after a road near where it started. This fire eventually grew to at least 8,000 acres. While I was investigating this fire, a larger fire called the Eastland Complex Fire in Eastland County was rapidly growing farther to the east. This wildfire started as multiple separate fires that combine into one large inferno that burned more than 50,000 acres. Weather conditions in this area were extremely dry the day that the fire blew up. Relative humidity levels at Eastland Municipal Airport dropped as low as 7%, if you can believe that. I drove to Eastland County the next day and was shocked by the devastation. The worst damage I saw from this fire was in the small town of Carbon, Texas. The fire quickly overtook this town on Friday, March 18th, burning most of the buildings. Numerous homes were completely destroyed and left as burnt rubble. The burned out shells of dozens of vehicles marked former residences. The glass in their windows had shattered. The metal frames were twisted and distorted, and even the rubber tires were consumed by the flames. On one street, however, I saw a home still standing in the middle of other homes that had previously burned down. I was curious how this one home resisted the fire, so I stopped to ask. I'm here in Carbon, Texas. Unfortunately, much of the town burned in the fire, but I came across one house on a street that did not burn. Someone's in the home. I'm gonna ask them if there's a secret. Maybe they built out of different materials or maybe they actually stayed and fought the fire. Septic tank right there and it gave a break. Oh, there was a break. So there was a break from the fire? Yeah. From, which way did it come? It went this way. Real fast? Uh, yesterday ah, evening? I wasn't here. They wouldn't let me in. Oh, really? But that's the only thing. I just put a... We've been bu building on this house. That was the house we lived in. Yeah. No, nope, this is not livable yet, but... Uh, we were... We put a septic tank in. They finished it yesterday morning. They just finished the septic tank? Yesterday morning. And, uh... This dirt thing here... That's oh, what... I, I see. It was a break. It broke it. 
Interesting. And it went around. Yeah, so the, it was basically a grass fire and, and brush and stuff like that. So you had you had a natural break there that protected your home. Yep. Yeah. That's, I, I was just driving through, and unfortunately, a lot of the homes were lost. Yeah. And I saw that yours wasn't. Who are I was, you? I, I, my name is Hal Needham. I work with GeoTrack. I'm a scientist. I do oh, okay. extreme weather and disaster science. Yeah. I live in Galveston, Texas. So, yeah, so, that's, um, that's all it was. Is, is a, it, it was a break. Because they, they burned all the houses right straight up there. On this side are gone. Yeah, well, I couldn't Except believe for just the brick house. driving down the street, almost a lot of these houses were gone. Yeah, and this is this is the only reason. Yeah, you had this natural break here. Well, it, they, well, they, they they put the septic up there, and then they smoothed the dirt out, and that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering. I thought I didn't know if you had like a sprinkle system or your house was <laughs> built out of something different. No, you just had built. this natural break here. Yeah. But yeah. that's interesting to see. You don't need that much of a break. It's mm -hmm. what, maybe 50 feet, 60 feet wide? And it, and it, it went fast. It was going fast, so it missed all these. It didn't do anything to these trees. Yeah. Not much. So that really saved you. Yeah, it did save yeah. me. What is your name? Beverly Stanley. Be Beverly, I'm Hal Needham. Thank you so much for taking yeah. time. The break that Beverly was talking about was a strip of dirt around 50 to 60 feet wide behind her home. The morning of the fire, workers installed a septic tank in her backyard and in the process dug up her grass. So for 50 or 60 feet from the edge of her home, her yard was just dirt. This strip of dirt saved the building. This was a fast-moving wildfire, mostly burning grasses, trees, and shrubs, and the fire ran out of fuel before it could reach the edge of her home. She later clarified that her main home with her clothing and most of her possessions burned, and the building that survived was a secondary structure but it taught me a powerful lesson of the importance of having a break between buildings and available fuel. This lesson was reinforced 30 minutes later when I had a conversation with a firefighter named David in front of the fire department in the same town of Carbon, Texas. I'm here in Carbon, Texas with David. Uh, David, the fire came through here so quickly, but you had some advice about how people can make themselves more resilient by giving some space with firewood and things right up next to the house, right? Yeah, that's correct. You need to create a buffer zone between your house. A defendable space is actually what the Forest Service calls it, so that we have a chance. If you've got shrubs in your flower bed right there at the base of your house, and they go up, your house is going to catch. So, I mean, you need to give yourself some space. Late fall, early winter, it's good to mow your grass really short. So that way, when if a fire does come through, your fuel's two inches tall rather than six inches tall. Is that especially good like your last cut of the season because you might not be cutting it for another five or six months, right? Correct. It shouldn't be growing obviously when it's dormant, but cut that grass off and that way it's short all winter long. And I'm so, guessing like wood piles, things like that, keep them farther from your house, right? Most definitely. You know, winter times when you're going to be burning firewood and you're going to stack your wood up close to the house so that it's easily accessible but that's not good if you have a fire come through because that's just fuel stacked up right there against your house. What about trees? Is it good to kind of trim them or keep them back as best you can? Yeah, your, your evergreen trees, they're gonna burn as well, but they're at least they're green. The, you know, your oak trees, everything that, that loses their leaves, they're dormant, they're dry. If they're relatively close to your house and they do catch fire, that's putting a lot of heat right there on the side of your house it's, it increases the chances of uh, your house catching fire. So really anything that's flammable, it's good if people have a buffer between their house and that thing, right? Yes, I would, I would say at minimum of 30 feet, but you know, 40 to 50 foot ain't gonna hurt nothing either. David, any other tips that people can think about just to make themselves more fire ready? 
I, I say the main thing is keep your fuel short, your grass, keep you know combustibles out away from the house is the best thing to do. What about things like gasoline, uh, chemicals, things that are you know on the property? Is there something people should think about with that? Well, normally, like in a commercial setting, it, your your liquid, your gasoline, and stuff like that, it's, if it's inside a building, it's got to be kept in a, a flammable cabinet. Now, I've never been in a house or a garage where they had a flammable cabinet in their garage, but that stuff is flammable. If if they if their fire gets close, that's going to give it more fuel. So you always need to to think about where where it's at if uh, if a fire does start. Is it good maybe if people have less quantity of like not have like tons of gasoline or something like that? Well, definitely you don't need a 55 gallon drum in your garage. Most everybody has a two or five gallon can, but like I say that's just, that's life. Everybody's gonna have it for lawnmowers and stuff like that. But just be cognitive of where it's at. If you've got a, a storage building out away from your house, it'd be better to keep it in there rather than keeping it in your garage. I see, so just using common sense, we gotta live our lives, but let's think about what we're doing. Absolutely. David, I uh, appreciate you taking time and hopefully a quick recovery here. Yes, sir. Thank you. A housekeeping note, in most of these interviews, we can hear the sounds of life in the background. A strong wind is a consistent background sound we hear in these interviews I conducted. Unfortunately, the winds remained strong for several days, enabling the fires to spread faster. We could also hear a generator in the background of that interview I conducted with David. We were standing in front of the fire station where a generator was operating in the background. The fire station became the hub of community activity in Carbon, Texas, the day after the fire. Dozens of people came together on a sunny afternoon to donate supplies like bottled water, and a grill was cooking Texas sausage for those who needed a meal. We can also hear a generator in the background of this next interview I conducted with a man named Tyler. He operated a mobile pump to extract water from storage containers into his truck, where firefighters would then pump the water into their mini fire trucks and go to the fire's edge. How, um, what's your name? My name is Hal, by the way. Nice Tyler to meet you. Tyler? Yes. Nice to meet you. How does this work with the water? Like, do they request water and then, like, you provide it? And then, well, we just kind of, you know, when this stuff starts going on, we, we've got all these trucks ready to go. You know, when the fire comes in, we'll set up. We'll try to get whoever's in charge, you know, tell us where to set up and stuff like that. And is it coming off well water, pretty much, or? Yes, we have, uh, we've got several 10,000 gallon uh, water tanks that we keep full all the time. We just go and pump out of those. Are those buried or are they above ground? They're above ground. Oh, I see. So you kind of have these tanks and you know where yes, they're, they're at and they're stuff. They're scattered out several different areas. That way we can, so, you know, if a fire's on the south side of town, we've got tanks on the south side of town and stuff like that. So if they make a request, like they need water in a certain area, you just, you get down there with the truck and just kind of pump it out for them? Yes. So do you, do you like pump it from the container over to their mobile vehicle and then they, they can go out and fight a fire basically? Yes. Well, we'll fill up our trucks and then they'll pull up to us. We'll be ready to go and they'll just pull up to us. We'll open every, all the valves and fill them up and they go fight the fire. And usually they'll come back to the same spot, you know, that they filled up before generally the firefighting trucks roughly how many gallons did they hold anywhere from 250 to a thousand okay so they might go out then for an hour or something and then come back and get another refill i guess it depends on the conditions but usually an hour they're they're back before an hour okay 
Yeah, last night I was over, there was a Chico Lane fire and I, I saw them actually fighting it and they were going around the perimeter, but again, it was a mobile truck that had been filled up and then it was hosing it out and it seemed to be pretty effective. Yes. And then, uh, Tyler, you just said it seemed like there were multiple fires and they were kind of swirling and moving around. Did this one seem a little bit unpredictable? Yes, because the wind, we had, we had a cold front blow in last night around, what, 11 o'clock maybe? And the wind changed, so that screwed everything up. I mean, it changed everything. Fire went complete opposite way, and it was a bad deal. I interviewed Tyler near Gorman, Texas. He was set up at the intersection of a main road and a smaller rural road. I took the smaller road through the countryside, passing cattle ranches to the east of the fire. Along the way, I came across a couple who ran a ranch with about 100 cattle. Their names were Nan and Scott. I found them to be friendly and with good humor considering the situation. They just evacuated the night before, but the fire fortunately narrowly missed their home. What's your name? My name is Scott. Scott, I'm Hal. Yeah. What's your wife's name? Nan. Nan, okay. That's my mom's name. <laughs> Do you think it's going more this way, though? Yeah, it's winds out of the northwest. Yeah. And so it's blowing. That way, that's the way it was last night. Yeah, it seemed we like evacuated last night. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, originally they were coming in from the west off of when it got really hot and dry, but then the cold front came through. Yeah. That I, maybe saved I, you guys. I was evacuating like Leon, and then uh, the wind changed. And it so that saved you guys, really. Hi, Nan. Nice to meet you. That's my mom's name. <laughs> yeah. I'm just learning a little bit about the fire history. So there was a big fire here in 2006. Is that right? Yeah. 06 kind of came right through your property, right? It did. It came right through our property. Uh, the property that joins over there, it burnt his barn, Mr. Clark's barn, and this, where this trailer house is here, it burnt it completely come across here and burnt our field here. The pecan trees down there on the other side of the creek, it burnt all through there. It split and went around our house, luckily. We were, really? We were fortunate on that one. So just by chance, kind of, it went around your house in 06? Just by chance, it went around the house. Were you all afraid yesterday this might be like 06 and come through here? You, you know how, how a cat on a hot tin roof feels? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, and y'all evacuated yesterday, right? Late yesterday afternoon, we watched it, and when the glow got real close, we just decided that it's time to go. So we put everything out where it wouldn't burn, fixed the animals where they would be okay, and went to Lake Leon and just sat in the cars and, and watched it. Oh, and you could see the glow. This was at night? You could see the glow, yeah. All the way from, you could look at the eastern horizon all the way to the western horizon it was a solid red glow and every once in a while they'd be flare-ups yeah some people in carbon were telling me it was just so broad and extensive that even some of the firefighters said that's why it was so hard to fight it was like it was just such a big fire it was it was it, it moved fast which fortunately for some people with cattle that and they had short grass that was good because it just would singe the hair on the cows other people that had them in a pasture with a little higher grass they lost some of them Oh, so because it came through really quickly, it, it uh, some of the cattle survived even if the fire came through the pasture. Yes. And if yes. it was slower, then it would have been worse for them. And if you had longer grass, it was worse. Yes, this, that's correct. This one was nearly as bad, or maybe maybe worse on what what it destroyed. You know, we sort of went and watched it last night over by the lake. Yeah. And watched it. And it was red. Oh. I saw the pictures of it just glowing. I couldn't believe it, you know. Yeah. Did not even. Yeah. 
Are there, so are there, like you mentioned, if you have shorter grasses, that's better. Are there other things that people can do to help make themselves more resilient or help their animals make it through? Well, on a wildfire, no. You just kind of go with the cards you're dealt and do the best you can and pick some where they can take care of themselves and, and go. We've had some friends tried to call their cows out of harm's way and they got spooked and ran back into the flames. Really? So they they get spooked, they know something's going on and they can actually run into the fire? Yeah, yeah. They get they get cautious, they oh well, they get confused, they you know, it would be just like us. Sure. Out somewhere we'd get confused yeah. on things and go the wrong way. Yeah, what so what's the best thing you can do for cattle if there's a fire near your ranch? Well, get them to, to, to ground that's plowed. Or if you can't do that, cut the fence and make sure they're branded or something and so you can claim them later. Have you ever heard of people like mowing or, or just trying to get the grass down shorter as the fire approaches? Oh yeah. Some of our friends that live over about two miles as the crow flies, he has a huge tractor and he plowed around the house, his house, his dad's house and his grandpa's house. And by plowing around that and then cutting the fence and going to the neighbors and plowing around their field, it saved the neighbor's field and it saved their houses. So basically, he put a buffer where he's keeping the fuels away from the house and uh, build and digging. He can plow a trench around the building. Exactly. Exactly. As long as you've got that space where it won't get your house on fire, you're good. Yeah, that's really good advice that I think people can listen to and hopefully follow. Um, any other thoughts about living in fire country or a- any other things that Keep people should think about? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, what was that? Keep a go bag ready. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Probably with your important documents and things like that. Documents and medication. You know, people forget their medication. But the older we get, the more we need yeah. it. <laughs> well, and you're right. Sometimes you don't have a lot of lead time, right? You exactly. just have a bag you can grab and go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's just basically it is there anything do people have any kind of special insurance or any advice on like how to deal with insurance claims or having you how to deal with that i well we had to deal with fire insurance but it's through through your people that insure you they can walk you through the steps that you need to take you know they'll they'll guide you the best that they can and luckily we had good insurance and they took real good care of us when we had it yeah, sometimes, you know, people think it'll never happen to them, but when it does, it really helps you get on your feet again quickly. It does. It really does. And there's a lot of programs you can get involved, like helping build your fences back. Because when a fire comes through, if you have a wooden fence, it's gone. Well, even, even the bob wire stretches after yeah. it gets hot. Oh, really? Yeah. So are there programs like that will help you get your fence back after the fire? Yeah, they have some disaster programs specifically for that when a disaster comes through. Is that through your insurance or is that through FEMA or who would that be through? FEMA helped with that. So they would help, especially farmers, ranchers, things like that? I'm going to say they used to. Okay. I, I don't know what will happen now. Yeah. But... Back in when we had the fire come through in 06, they, they were very fortunate and helped us. And, you know, we had people, to... People have benefits. Yeah, they throw benefits. We yeah. got uh, one of the people that owned... Well, the people that own H&R Feed over at Ranger, they're getting a benefit going that's going to be April the 21st at H&R Feed. Oh, what kind of benefit are they doing? It's for, for the fire, for people who've lost things. Or like a benefit meal? Benefit meal... Why I use funds to help them get their 
fences back, raise funds to help them try to find a place to live. It'll be like an evening meal or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check H&R Feed over at Ranger. Bill Riley will be glad to tell you all about it. Okay. Thank you so much. I love things like that, that pe- practical things that people can do, right, to help oh, yeah. oh, help yeah. their neighbors recover. And they're having a drive today at Eastland at Megan's Market to, for, to bring water and Gatorade and stuff so the guys can replenish after being out and finding it for 24 hours. Yeah, that's right. Some of these people are working around the clock for days. And I saw even over in Carbon, they had like a staging area where people could just get water, you know, if they lost their house or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, communities pretty well come together at a time like this. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed people coming together around here and are working together. Oh, yeah. Well, we all grew up together, so... You know, if you say something about somebody, you're talking about somebody else's cousin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping that this uh, the winds die down and hopefully they can get this fire out sooner rather than later. We hope so, too. Thanks, guys. We've had people from all over, our department from all over coming, and it's just been amazing. Are they mostly, like, different towns and stuff? They'll come over to help fight it? Yeah, we've had some from uh, Parker County. So they'll come in from a distance because it's too big for any one town to fight, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because all these guys are volunteers. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's they're out trying to take care of their pastures and their animals and their family. And then all of a sudden they get a call. They got to just drop what they're doing and go. Yeah. They're really heroes, you know. They are. And they're helping they're save these heroes. towns. <laughs> they are. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate you taking time and uh, you, you helped educate me and helped me understand a little more about, you know, it's like you can't stop the fires, but there are things it sounds like you can do to help yeah. make yourself more resilient. Listen, I've seen this movie twice. I don't want to see the third one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Dan. I appreciate You're it. <laughs> wow, Nan and Scott had some great insights about the impacts of wildfires on ranchers in central Texas. At one point in our interview, we heard Nan say, thanks guys, her gratitude was extended to firefighters who were leaving the fire and returning to the road to get more water. They were passing through a gate on Scott and Nan's property. They were driving one of these mini fire trucks. These vehicles are basically small utility trucks. They look more like pickup trucks than full-size fire engines, but they're equipped with a massive tank that holds hundreds of gallons of water. Scott and Nan happened to be in the right place at the right time to open up the gate for the firefighters. They explained if they were not there to open up the gate, the firefighters would have had the right, by law, to cut the lock on their gate or cut any of the barbed wire fences to go and fight the fire. Scott told me a memory from a previous fire when a helicopter positioned above a freshwater pond on his property and lowered a hose to suck up water. Such ponds are common on central Texas ranches to provide water for livestock. Nan told me the state of Texas owns any surface water and has the right to take such water from any ranchers to fight fires. Scott and Nan directed me from their ranch to a staging area for firefighters where I had my last interview of the day. This was a short discussion with Matt Hutzel, the fire chief of Tolar, Texas Fire Department. He traveled about one hour west from where he lives to help fight fires out on the front lines. Really? Well, so there are four main fires, is that right? I'm here with Matt. Nice. To, thank you for taking time. Appreciate it. No problem. It. So, if you have Onyx Hunt or Onyx Off Road. Oh, nice. Um, this is an app. It's called Onyx Off Road. Mm-hmm. 
or they have Onyx Hunt. Okay. I have terrible signal right now. So yeah, really fast mine is pretty slow too. But anyways, it'll it has the fire on it and what it's burned oh. and what it hasn't burned. So right now we're just in kind of a it's all burned over there. Yeah. It's all burned up there. So all this that's burning is burning into the black. I got but you. If it gets past us here, then it goes to the town of Gorman. Oh, I got so. So, so this is a critical fire here because of the wind direction. Correct. Right? Correct. I got you. So, you know, just taking a minute yeah. to load. I, I've heard like the winds kind of change directions a bit with this fire. Is that true? So uh, that more... was that was yesterday. So we had a strong southerly wind. The storms blew through not here, but through the Metroplex. And uh, after that, the front blew in, and it, the winds just 180. They're blowing straight south. Oh, I got so, you. so I, that kind of changed the direction the fire was moving, correct, right? Correct. And it was they had several homes burn uh, just, I guess, that'd be west of us here last night. Did that make it a little more challenging to respond in a way? Because then all of a sudden, if the, if the winds are changing direction, then the fire is moving in a different direction, right? Right. Like, and especially at night, because the Forest Service, uh, the dozers don't work at night, and the planes don't fly at night. So oh, I got you. So you had less resources at night right. than you do in the day. Right. Exactly. So today they've been dropping water. They've been doing some different things from the air, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's three of them right there doing it right now. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's what they've been doing all day long. I'd imagine that helps quite a bit as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Isn't it a challenge for them to find water on the land to, to pull um, from? So these guys, apparently there's a, I haven't seen it, but there's a lake to the north of us. So like they can be drop and fill up and be back in about five minutes. Oh, really? So yeah. they can do a lot of runs. Yeah. These guys are, are quick. Oh. And the little ones are way more maneuverable. They're kind of, they're a little more quick response. Yeah. So, so that helps a lot. And they'll fly until about sunset or so. And until then dark. Yeah. I, I don't know what it, maybe 30 minutes before sunset, something yeah. like that. Matt, anything people should think about, make themselves or their communities more resilient to fires? So absolutely. So Texas, they have the FireWise program. So if you don't have a defensible space around your house, we can't protect it. So trim your trees back from your house, cut your grass. If you have to evacuate, put your sprinkler on your roof, turn it on, whatever. Because if we can't, if, if there's if there's two homes, one of them's all grown up around and one of them's not, we're going to go protect the one that's not because there's a chance that we can, that we can I save see. it. I see. So if you have brush right up to your doorstep and a tree right there and firewood, you really can't save it, Absolutely. right? Yeah, there's nothing we can do. When, when the flames are like that and moving so fast, there's nothing, no way to stop it. Is there anything people should think about as far as their grass or things like that? Uh, just keep it short. You know, keep it short. And if there is a fire, wet it down. And if they go to the Texas Forest Service website, they can learn more about the FireWise program. And there's lots of uh, resources available to the public to learn about and uh, resources to help uh, get their property ready for a wildfire. So, Matt, are you with a local fire department or who, who, who the, do you work I'm with? the chief of Toller Fire Department oh, near Granbury. So I've heard a, a lot of different departments are coming from, from around the region as well, right, yeah, to help fight this? We're about an hour from here. How does this fire relate to other ones as far as the size of it or the scope of it, things like that? Um, it's not as large. If you remember the Possum Kingdom fire back in 2011, it's probably not as large, but it's, it's moving very fast through open open prairies. So that, that's been the the tough part is just catching catching it and getting that. Is that because of the amount of dry fuels or the strength of the wind or just a combination of those? Yes. <laughs> so super low humidity, already dead fuels. So even if it rains, they, they're not going to absorb the moisture. You know, they're not green. So yeah, dry fuels, super low humidity and high wind. Central Texas could get pretty dry. Does this seem like one of the drier years that you've seen? Does it stand out to you or does it seem so pretty normal? Throughout the summer, we had plenty of rain. It was a, a mild summer, so we grew a lot of fuel. But now we've had drought conditions through the winter. So that's kind of what's fed the 
the extreme fires. Wait, so if you have a, a wet year and then you're followed by a drought in the next year, that combination could be bad, right? Because you're growing fuel and then you're exactly. drying them out? Exactly. That's it. So, so for fires, it would almost be better if it was just dry all the way through instead of wet followed by dry. Almost, yeah, because your fuels don't grow. And we've had a couple of, of mild years, at least in this area, for the, you know, the through the spring and summer, they were wet, grew lots of fuel. And then uh, it didn't burn much last year, and now it didn't burn much through the, or it didn't burn much two years ago, and then it, we didn't do a lot of burning through last summer and spring and fall, but now. So those fuels are just building yeah, up. They're just growing and growing. So, and that's kind of I think what what's happened here. Yeah, a lot of fuel, and it's a lot of dry fuel right yeah, now. That's it. Matt, appreciate you taking time. No problem. Okay. After I finished my conversation with Matt, I drove over to Lake Leon to see the firefighting planes fill up with water on their last run of the day. These planes basically do a touch-and-go maneuver, skimming the lake surface to pick up water, and then going airborne again all in one motion. On my drive over to Lake Leon, I passed an area where knee-high flames approached the road I was driving on, slowly burning the grasses and some of the shrubs along the roadside. In another area, smoke smoldered through the fields of a ranch, and one of the fence posts of a barbed wire fence was still on fire, not very far from the road where I drove on. In the evening light, I reflected on everything I had learned during these past several days. The biggest lesson which I heard again and again was the importance of creating a defendable space around your home if you live in fire country. This gives the firefighters a chance to defend it, and in some cases will even save your home without the presence of firefighters. I also learned there are some things we can all do to help victims of these specific fires. Our rancher friends Scott and Nan mentioned the benefit put on by H&R Feed in Ranger, Texas for the fire victims. The date of this benefit is Saturday, April 23rd. They will have a live and silent auction, barbecue plates, and live music. For more information, check out H&R Feed online or call Bill or Pam at 254-647-5311. If you cannot participate in the benefit event but would still like to see how you can make a donation, Bill and Pam can help guide you with that as well. After I made it back home from my wildfire road trip, the Texas A&M Forest Service put out a press release about the fires. They said a Southern Plains wildfire outbreak occurred on Thursday, March 17th across West Central Texas. This weather phenomenon is characterized by extreme fire weather and can be compared to the high-impact Santa Ana wildfire events that occur in Southern California. They stated over the past seven days, firefighters responded to 178 wildfires that burned 108,493 acres across the state. This was truly a massive wildfire event. And finally, join in on our online discussion at our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. I have three discussion questions for this episode. Number one, has a wildfire ever threatened your home before? And if so, what was the outcome? Question number two, have the current drought conditions throughout the central and western U.S. caused you to think differently about wildfire risk in your area? And question number three, what is the most important lesson you learned from this episode? Thank you so much for your involvement and support of the GeoTrek podcast. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.
Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.